0: Thank you, Owen. Yeah, I got it going already this morning. Uh, Owen talks about, when he talks about being in my class, that's, a, that's been a long time. Now, he's still young, he still looks young. I, on the other hand, I don't know if you, at this distance, you probably can't tell. But if you see me up close, and if you had a before and after shot from like the first time I came here, which was over in the other building many years ago, you'd say, wow, he's really aged. And uh, this hit me, let me see, this was Friday, I think, Thursday or Friday of this week. Um, I, drove, I drove through a Starbucks to get some coffee, and uh, I'm sitting there at the window waiting for the, the, the lady would already taken my money, and she was gone to get my drink and bring it back to me. And another lady working in the Starbucks turned around, she was, looked like she was probably just out of high school, she turned around looked at me and she said, Grandpa! I mean, just looking right at me, Grandpa, and, and I had these glasses on like that, and I said, I don't think so. <laughs> she said, oh, oh, I'm sorry. She said, you don't look like a grandpa. She said, it's just your car is like the car of a grand- somebody's grandfather that works in the store, and I just saw the car and thought it was him, and I'm like, yeah, right. So my, uh, my uh, 12-year-old was in the car. He loved that. He thought that was the funniest thing ever. So I've been grandpa for a couple of days around the house, and they're telling all our friends, and so uh, that's kind of where I am. I, I uh, was up in the attic on Saturday and stepped through uh, the ceiling uh, into the garage, and uh, luckily it didn't fall all the way through, but there's a hole in the roof. And I got down And Ann said, well, that was a grandpa thing to do. So uh, here I am. Hopefully, uh, my grandpa's status is not affecting my teaching. <laughs> so we'll see about that. But it's good to be back. Good to see you. And uh, we're going to do what we can in First Peter, see how this one day uh, event goes. I, I like the-, the idea of like drinking from a fire hydrant because that's kind of what this could be like. But my- I'm not going to attempt. To, to get through all of 1 Peter and, and do everything I'd like to do. I can't do that if we did four days. Uh, so I'm going to do what we can do and do it as well as I can and uh, hopefully uh, have a better sense of 1 Peter when we're done. So let's do just a little bit of uh, introduction. Uh, on the handout, there's more here than I'm going to say in terms of introduction. It's uh, that first page. 1 uh, Peter is a letter in the New Testament. and Now you've got Thirteen letters of Paul, those are the more famous letters in the New Testament. Uh, The thing about Paul's letters, one of the things about them, they tend to be uh, very specifically addressed. His letters are written to either specific churches, like the churches in Rome, or the churches in Corinth, or the churches of Galatia. A very specific audience in terms of churches, or they're written to specific individuals like Timothy or Titus. So Paul's letters, all 13 of those, are more specific uh, in terms of the audience. These letters that 1 Peter is a part of, they're called the general letters or the Catholic letters. Now, not Catholic because of the Catholic Church. It comes from two Greek words that means uh, according to the whole or or general. And they're more general letters. Now, if you think about what these letters are, uh, I, I think I put in the thing here seven. If you count Hebrews, which I probably should you got Hebrews and James and 1st and 2nd Peter and 1st, 2nd and 3rd John and Jude. Now these are also letters in the New Testament, but they're not as famous, not often uh, preached or taught from as often as Paul's letters. And if you think about these eight letters, uh, all of them are a little more general in their audience. They're not written to a specific region or to specific individuals, they're much more broad. The letter to the Hebrews has no introductory material whatsoever. 1 John has no introduction. You don't know who it's written to. Now, 1 Peter does have an introduction, uh, but when you look at it, it's to five different provinces in what would be modern-day Turkey, Asia Minor at the time. And so what you get in these general letters, and 1 Peter would certainly fit this, you get a more generalized audience that also means that it's more likely going to be written for more general kinds of situations. Like when Paul writes to Corinth, he's dealing with specific issues in the church there. Now, it just might be that we have the same issues going on in our churches today and in our lives. And so when that's true, that's a very easy application. In in a letter like 1 Peter or James, it's a more generalized tone. So he's going to deal with the kinds of issues that believers in lots of different areas might be dealing with, like suffering. That's going to be a a key issue in 1 Peter. Well, there's never been a time when people weren't dealing with suffering as Christians. And so it's going to be easy application. I think there, there are going to be ways in which you're going to see, oh, this fits well our situation or a situation I'm dealing with. I think that's true of all of these general letters, and 1 Peter would certainly be one of them. So, there's a more generalized tone. It's written to Christians in Asia, Bithynia, Cappadocia, Galatia, these five provinces Uh, and so I think that makes it more easily applied. It's the kind of situations that people might deal with in any time and every place as God's people. Uh, So that's what I think is important about them being general letters. Uh, If you look on down the list there I say something about authorship and date. Uh, I I believe Peter wrote both 1st and 2nd Peter. There are some uh, challenges to that. You know, Peter was a Galilean fisherman. We learn that from his call uh, in Mark chapter 1. He's fishing, he and his brother Andrew, and Jesus walks along and says, Come follow me, and they leave their fishing nets and go, go follow Jesus. When you look at First Peter, the Greek of First Peter is excellent. I mean, if, uh, if this student, if he were in my class, if, if Peter were in my class and wrote this kind of Greek, He'd be almost as good as Owen was when he was a Greek student. Uh, he, this, this person would be an A student. Now, think about that. We're talking about a Galilean fisherman who writes an outstanding, excellent Greek. It's not what you would have expected. It wouldn't be his first language. Aramaic would be his first language, but he, he writes an excellent Greek. Well, then you look at Second Peter, and the, the Greek is much different. It's not nearly as well written in terms of style the Greek of Second Peter. Second Peter looks like the kind of Greek uh, that a Galilean fisherman might write in, and so that's caused some people to say, "Well, that couldn't be the same person that wrote both of them." Then, uh, and Second Peter looks more like what Peter would have actually written, and so somebody else must have written First Peter and attached Peter's name so it would gain easier acceptance. The problem with that argument, and lots lots of people have made it uh, in the last couple hundred years, uh, the problem with that is we don't know if Peter used a secretary, which was common in the ancient world. We know Paul used a man named Tertius as a secretary in the writing of Romans. We know that. We also know at the end of 1 Peter in chapter 5, verse 12, 11, 12, 13, he mentions Silas, and he just says, through Silvanus, or through Silas. Now, that probably indicates Silas was the carrier of 1 Peter, but it it does not exclude him from also being the secretary or the, the, the person that Peter would have dictated this to. And we just don't know how much of a role the person who actually wrote it out as it was dictated to him, what role he may have had in putting it in the best Greek he could. And all of this could happen under the inspiration of the Spirit. The Spirit could be involved in this whole process. I'm just saying there's not enough evidence in my mind if the letter says Peter at the opening, you're going to have to demonstrate with much stronger evidence than that, than that just the style's different, to say Peter didn't write it. So I believe Peter wrote both 1st and 2nd Peter. I do think there's a good chance he did not use a secretary in the writing of 2nd Peter. He did use a secretary in the writing of 1st Peter, and that, is reflect, that reflects uh, the style of what we find. Now the date, I'm going to date it somewhere between 62 and 67. I'll say a bit about that uh, more about that in a moment. Uh, the audience is a five different provinces: Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. These are five provinces in, in what was at that time Asia Minor, what is today Turkey. And these churches cover a, a, a rather sizable portion of what would be modern-day Turkey. And they, they form a circle, these, these provinces. And so it's very likely that the letter was written and intended to be carried, maybe by, most likely by Silas, Silvanus, uh, that it would be carried in a circular pattern. And, and so it's a true circular letter. He's writing to Christians in a large, broad area. He's dealing with issues that would be pertinent to Christians throughout this region at this time. And the letter carrier is going to go and, and read the letter to each of those churches in a circular pattern. And uh, I think it's a circular letter. Now, the last background issue is purpose. And this is probably the most important issue uh, because why is he writing this? And, and that should guide everything we do in it. Everything he's going to say is moving towards a certain purpose. So what's that purpose? When you open up 1 uh, Peter, let's just go ahead and do that. Let's look at the document itself. In chapter 1, verse 1, in, in the opening, in the introduction section, he says, Peter, apostle of Jesus Christ, to the elect, or to the chosen. And then he uses a word uh, that means exile, that might be translated exile. Look in your translation there. You might have exile, you might have foreigner, you might have alien, you might have stranger, you might have sojourner. Different translations struggle to find just the right word to translate this. Uh, I'm going I'm to end up today translating it uh, refugee, refugee. Uh, it's talking about someone who's displaced from their homeland. So in chapter 1, verse 1, he refers to them in two, with two terms. One is they are the elect, or they are the chosen. The other is they are immigrants, exiles, people who are out of their homeland, away from their home, away from their place where their citizenship is, and they're in a land that is not their home. Now that's the first identity marker, the first two. They are the elect and they are exiles. Now, look at one seventeen. He talks about, uh, he says, Now, live the time of your immigration. Now, he uses a different word here. Uh, and your translation, might, it says, Live in reverence or live in fear, the time of your immigration, the time of your sojourn, something like that. Here's a, the second word he uses in 1 Peter for someone who's displaced from their homeland. Someone whose citizenship is somewhere else and either under threat of violence or just by their own decision choose to go to a different land where they don't have citizenship, where they likely don't have rights or privileges. And, and I, would, I think this term I would translate it immigrant or immigration, the time of your immigration. Now look at uh, chapter 2 verse 11. Here he brings the two words together. He says, Beloved, I urge you or I encourage you as immigrants and refugees. Now, again, your translation is going to say alien, stranger, foreigner. Uh, it's going to give sojourner. It's going it's to give a lot of different options. A lot of those words don't work well in uh, 2018. Uh, you, I, I don't think to refer to someone as an alien uh, when you're talking about a believer this is not our home. This current place in which we reside is not our home, but our citizenship is in heaven. I don't think alien is the right word to refer to that. I don't think that's the right word to refer to anyone today who might be an immigrant or a refugee. It sounds like somebody who got dropped out of a spaceship. I don't think foreigner is a good term. It's just overwhelmingly negative. When, almost in any instance where I hear someone use the term foreigner... Uh, it, it's used in a negative way. They're a foreigner. I don't think that works well. Sojourner is a great term. I just don't think we use it enough to really res- It doesn't resonate with us very well. Uh, and so what word does? I think the two words in English that translate these Greek words very well into our own situation is immigrant and refugee. Now, this is at the heart of what this letter is about. The purpose of 1 Peter is to say, this world in which you live, in which they lived in the first century, and the same is true in the world in which we live in the 21st century, this world is not your home. This world uh, is a fallen world. This world is a world that is upside down. This world is not where our citizenship should be found. We live in this world, but we are passing through. We live in this world, but this world is not our home. Our citizenship is in heaven. Now, I'll say quite a bit more about this as we go. So, Peter, in driving this point home, I think is trying to explain to them why they find themselves suffering. And here's another theme that we're going to find throughout 1 Peter. It's the theme of suffering. I think the situation is one where they are facing alienation, hostility. Uh, They are being socially uh, ostracized because of their identification with Christ. They're suffering in a variety of ways. And and why is that so? Why does the world seem to hate us? Why do people treat us as outsiders? Why do they no longer want to associate with us? Why do they slander us as God's people? And here's Peter's answer to that. You're living in a world that is not your home. Your citizenship is not here. And what happens to people when they go to a land where they do not have citizenship and they do not have rights and they don't have the privileges of citizenship? How do the citizens of that place tend to treat those non-citizens? Oftentimes not very well. Don't be surprised if you find yourself suffering, if you find yourself being ostracized, if you find yourself being alienated. It's because this world is not your home. You're just passing through. And you're an immigrant, a refugee. And so don't be surprised if you find yourself in this situation. He actually says that in chapter 4, verse 12. Don't be surprised at the fiery trial that comes upon you. Why? Because we're immigrants and refugees. This world is not our home. So that's the situation. And he wants to offer for God's people... Chosen, immigrant, refugees, living in a land that's not their own, he wants to offer them hope. The hope is you are God's chosen ones. It's not like you had to make yourself lovable. It's not that you did something that made God want to love you more. You didn't deserve God's love. God chose you. You didn't choose God. And you are God's chosen people. As a result of that, he has an inheritance for you that cannot be taken. It cannot be stolen. It it does not decay. Nothing can happen to it. It's being kept in heaven for you. And you are being kept for it. You are being guarded as well. Now that doesn't mean you won't experience hardship suffering difficulty in this life but you will not utterly be destroyed you will ultimately be delivered and be vindicated and so there is hope there is hope now that God's presence is with us but there is hope for a future that is much brighter than the present how what a blessing would it be to an immigrant to be told you have an inheritance A person who leaves their homeland, leaves their citizenship, going to another land, likely never to return to the land from which they came, they're giving up a great deal. If they have an inheritance, they're probably giving it up. Often inheritance in this time was land dominated. Well, if you leave your homeland and go to a different land, you're giving up your inheritance. You might even be disinherited uh, if you're a believer in this culture. As you might be in some cultures even today, if you identify with Christ. What a blessing to know you have an inheritance. You have a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. These current trials, these current challenges, it's like fire uh, to gold. It purifies. It clarifies. And Peter says, that's what's happening in your suffering and in your alienation. So that's the purpose, to help them identify who they are. They are God's elect, but they're also exiles, immigrants, refugees. This helps them understand why they might be alienated, why people might be hostile toward them, why people might slander them. And he also wants to offer them hope, that God's presence is with us in the present. And there is a bright future, a glorious future, uh, because we have an inheritance that is awaiting us, and we're being kept and guarded by God for the inheritance. So that's the purpose. Now, having said all that, let's get started in, in the, uh, the actual letter itself. So we'll start. Uh, let's, let's look at how this whole document sort of lays out. And if you look on uh, page 2, structure, actually structure goes through the rest of it, the handout. Um Let's look at the way the, the letter lays out, and then we'll jump in. First uh, Peter begins with an opening. It's two verses. Uh, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Here we get the basic who's writing, who the audience is, and a little greeting. Uh, May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Then beginning in chapter 1, verse 3, and going through verse 12, you have a doxology. It's, it's praise given to God. Now, most letters in the New Testament, after the opening, have a thanksgiving section. But it's a prayer section. But it's prayer to God, giving thanks for the audience. Usually, you know, if it's a church at Thessalonica, he gives thanks to God for their, hope, their faith, their hope, their love. It's usually offering thanksgiving to God. It's a prayer, but it's a prayer of thanksgiving to God for the audience. It's a nice way to sort of establish good rapport with your audience to thank God for them. So that's normally what you find in a New Testament letter. But in at least three New Testament letters, there's no thanksgiving to God. It's more or a thanksgiving to God for the people he's writing to. It's praise to God. It's not about the audience. He models for them how they ought to give praise to God, even in their situation of being immigrants and refugees, even in the suffering they might be enduring, even in all that, he moves immediately from hello to praise. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And what follows is not giving thanks to God for the audience, it's giving praise to God. And so it's like a a moment of praise, and it goes through verse 12. So you've got the opening in verses 1 and 2. You've got the doxology, the praise to God that goes from chapter 1, verse 3, all the way through verse 12. Then in 1.13 uh, begins the body of 1 Peter. And the first section of the body goes from 1.13 all the way to chapter 2, verse 10. And uh, here he gives them some sense of what the call to be God's people in the world. What does it mean to be called, to be chosen as God's people in the world? That's going to be one thirteen through 2.10. And then if you go from 2.11, if you look at chapter 2, verse 11, through chapter 4, verse 11, you get the second part of the body. And and here's, here's here's the conduct of God's people in the world. So he starts with, talking about what it means to be God's chosen ones in the world. What does that mean? What does that look like in the first part of the body? 1.13 through 2.10. Then in 2.11 through 4.11, he talks about what our conduct should look like in the world as God's people. And then, basically, from 4.12 through to the end, with a couple of verses of conclusion... It's just a concluding element where he wraps up some loose ends. That's the section we're not going to get much to uh, today. Hopefully we'll, we'll be able to do more with uh, all, all the way up through 4.11. We'll be able to cover that pretty well. So that's kind of how the letter lays out. And then the conclusions, like the last couple of verses of chapter 5. So we've got five chapters here. And that's how it lays out. So let's get started here with the opening. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. I'm going to repeat some of the things I've just said, but I'm going to say a lot of other things, too. So let's just read it together again, verses 1 and 2. Peter, apostle of Jesus Christ, to the elect exiles in the dispersion from Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctification of the Spirit... Leading to obedience and the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace. May it be multiplied to you. In July 64 AD, Nero attempted to burn down part of Rome, some of the structures in Rome, so that he could rebuild it for his own glory and for the glory of Rome. He wanted to put his stamp on the structure. Uh, of the city of Rome and unfortunately the fire got slightly out of control and it nearly burned down the imperial city. Now in almost any political scenario I know this is not going to be good for your popularity numbers that you burned down the the, uh, capital city and so he cannot take responsibility for this there has to be a propaganda machine that goes into action in order to place the blame somewhere else. So who are you going to blame this fire on that nearly burned down the imperial city? Christians were the perfect foil. This was a new religion, relatively new, so people didn't know what to think about these early Christians. These early Christians refused to worship the gods that everyone else worshipped. And according to Tacitus who was a Roman historian who was close to some, several of the emperors, he said about Christians that they were antisocial and had a hidden hatred for mankind. Now, I think he misunderstood uh, early Christianity, but I can see how someone who was a pagan might feel that way about Christians because when they became believers, they, they stopped doing all the things that they might have been doing in the past. They stopped maybe carousing with the pagans like they had in the past and so now they get the idea well they just don't like other people if you're not part of their group but with that kind of slander out there about you being a new religion, being a religion that did not worship all the gods that everyone else worshipped, this would raise certain suspicions and so he, he uh, blamed the fire on these Christians and So they persecuted them horribly, terribly. They rolled them in pitch and set them on fire to light the public gardens. They sewed them into dead animal skins and fed them to wild dogs and lions. They hunted them down. They beat them. They tortured them. And this is going on in Rome in the mid-60s, just at the time Peter is writing this document. Now here's what's important to know about that. Peter's experiencing that kind of persecution when he writes this letter. It's going on all around him. He is under the threat of death. And he will ultimately die in that persecution. The audience he's writing to, however, they're not in Rome. They're in Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia and Asia and Bithynia. They're in a different part of the Roman Empire. And this persecution that I'm talking about where they were being threatened their very lives... That was going on in the imperial city. That was not happening in the other provinces. So it's very unlikely that the audience Peter's writing to that they were experiencing at the time he writes the same kind of persecution Peter was. But if you smell it, if you smell closely, you might, you might get the smell of that kind of persecution that might be on the horizon for these Christians also. But at a minimum... They are experiencing hostility, alienation, social ostracism as a result of their identification with Christ. Now, in times like that, it is important to know who you are. Identity matters most when you are being tested, when you are suffering. When, when everything's right, we, we can make it pretty well. We, we make it along. We muddle along when everything's good. But how about when life starts to fall apart? When the stress and pressure comes, now it matters who we are. Identity matters. We have a world that seems to have gone crazy because of identity. Everybody's struggling with identity. Who am I? What is my life? Where am I headed? We, 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 we're dealing with people struggling and suffering with sexual identity matters. And we, we just scratch our heads and say, what in the world is going on? And it keeps coming back to issues of identity. Peter seemed to know this uh, in the first century. And so in trying to help his readers deal with their suffering, and what might even be greater suffering on the horizon for them, he starts with identity. He identifies himself, Peter, apostle of the Lord Jesus, but very quickly he gets around to them and he he uses two terms to identify them, to help them understand who they are. And the first one is they are elect. They are chosen. And the second one is they are exiles. Now I've said that about five times. Let's actually get into it a little bit. They are the elect. They are the chosen. He's going to say this again in chapter 2, verse 9. He says, You are an elect generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. And there's our word again at the beginning of chapter 2, verse 9. You are an elect generation. So now the fact that he has mentioned elect or election, it didn't make him nervous, it makes us nervous if you're tuned in to the kinds of theological discussions that that might happen in your Sunday school class but certainly happen among theologians at the present time. You know, you get discussions about whether you're Calvinist or Arminian and what you think about God's sovereignty and all those kinds of discussions going on. And so when you hear the word election, you, you, you almost feel people tense up a little bit, which we shouldn't. There's no debate about whether election exists as a doctrine about whether we are elect, we are chosen by God, you would have to deny the New Testament if you're going to deny election. The question is the nature of it and what is he talking about? In short, here it is. elect. They were the elect. What did that mean? That they were people chosen by God. That's it. God chose them. It's not that they chose God. It's not that they made themselves appealing to God. And so God said, okay, I'll take you. It's not like there was a beauty pageant morally, spiritually, and and we dressed ourselves up real nice. And we look good. And God said, yes, I'll take you. I like the way you look. I like the way you act. None of that. God chose you. And he uses in doing this, and he does it throughout he uses the same language that is used of Israel. Well, who was Israel? They were God's chosen, they were God's elect. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 37, you get this kind of language. Now, here's talking about Israel. He says, Because he loved your fathers, he chose their descendants after them, and brought you out of Egypt by his presence and great power to drive out before you nations greater and stronger than you. And to bring you in and give you their land as an inheritance, as is now taking place. That's Deuteronomy. He chose you. Look at, uh, again, uh, verses 6 through 8, Deuteronomy. He says, for you are a holy people belonging to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be his own possession out of all the peoples on the face of the earth. The Lord had his heart set on you and chose you, not because you were more numerous than all the peoples, for you were the fewest, but because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your fathers. He brought you out with a strong hand and redeemed you from the place of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. You hear the language of God chose you. Malachi Chapter 1, verse 2, just from last year's winter Bible study. Jacob, I chose. Esau, I didn't choose. Or Jacob, I loved. Esau, I hated. Jacob, of course, representing Israel. So it's it's fascinating to me that here is a Jewish man, Peter, who believes that Jesus is the Messiah. We call him a Jewish Christian. And when he thinks about God's chosen, he has now expanded the, the language. God's chosen is now not an ethnic term. The chosen people of God are no longer an ethnic people, the Israelites. He has expanded it. It does not exclude Israel, but now it includes Gentiles who believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Now the chosen people are made up of Jews and Gentiles who believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And for his audience, Peter's audience, they most certainly were overwhelmingly Gentile living in these five provinces in Asia Minor. There were not a large population of Jewish people living in this area. They would be overwhelmingly Gentile like us. And yet he uses the language of election. We are God's chosen. Now look at the way he describes it. He says, you are the elect. Then in verse 2, he qualifies that by according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. So whatever he means by this election, and I've said it means that God chose you, it's according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. And there's another word that makes us nervous, foreknowledge. Now there are two ways we can understand foreknowledge. When you talk about the foreknowledge of God, that can mean, on the one hand, God merely knowing things in advance. That would be foreknowledge, right? Wouldn't it be nice to have foreknowledge of everything that happens in the world? What if you knew in advance what was going to happen? I mean, think of, think of how that would help your NCAA tournament bracket. I mean, I would win every year if I had foreknowledge of the NCAA tournament. Obviously, I don't because I'm in like the five percentile at the bottom now. My bracket is destroyed. Of course, I start with Kentucky on the champion line and work back, and the last few years that's not been working out too well for me. But think of what, what that would mean if you had foreknowledge of everything that would happen. It's possible that that's what Peter means when he says, your election, the fact that God chose you is according to God's foreknowledge. That is, God knew in advance that you were going to choose to be his follower. That would be foreknowledge, knowing something in advance. The other way, or the other meaning of foreknowledge here could mean that God not merely knows in advance, but somehow his knowledge helps to bring about the event. It's not just that events carry on and God knows, is able to see them before they happen. That that would be one kind of foreknowledge. There's another kind of foreknowledge where God's foreknowledge actually influences and and brings about, in some sense, the events that happen. Now, let's hear what the New Testament says when it uses this word in every other place, which is just about four other times. The noun foreknowledge occurs in Acts chapter 2, verse 23. And here Peter is preaching and he's talking about the death of Jesus. Now listen to this. He says, This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. Now there's our word, foreknowledge. Immediately before it, he uses the language of God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Now, Does Acts 2.23 mean that God merely knew in advance that Jesus was going to the cross? Or was this God's deliberate plan that Jesus go to the cross? Do you see the, the difference in foreknowledge here? Do you mean simply knowing something in advance? Or does that knowledge influence the event? Was Jesus crucified by God's deliberate plan? or did god merely look to the future and see that jesus was going to be crucified first peter chapter 1 verse 20 in this very letter he refers to jesus in verse 19 he says but by the precious blood of christ as a lamb without spot without blemish who was foreknown before the foundation of the world now look at your translation there at verse 20 does it say who was foreknown How many of you have a translation that says, who was chosen? Now, now chosen is more than just knowing something in advance. If you feel like you can translate this, Christ who was chosen before the foundation of the world, then this foreknowledge is more than just knowing something before it happens. In Romans chapter 8, verse 29, this is the third other place this word is used in a verb form. For those God foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. And then Romans chapter 11 verse 2. God did not reject His people whom He foreknew. So there's all the uses of this word in the New Testament. And just letting the New Testament speak for itself. There is no way in my mind you can limit God's foreknowledge to God merely knowing things before they happen. There is something of God's determinative, determinative will. There is something of causation here. God knowing in advance is more than just knowing it before it happens. God's creative will and determination is somehow wrapped up in God's foreknowledge. So what does that mean? That means God took the initiative in bringing the church into being. God took the initiative in making you His his people God took the initiative you didn't take the initiative God did you can't just be strolling down the street one day and think you know what I think I'll trust Jesus as Savior you won't human beings won't we're not just strolling along through life and decide I think I want to surrender my will to someone else no we want our will we're shaking our fist at God. Even while we long for what God, only God can offer, we're still shaking our fist. You didn't choose God. You, you think back, all the way back, for some of you, long time ago. You know, Dale, where's, where's, where'd Dale go? Where's Dale? Dale, you remember when you became a Christian? Like, how many years ago was that? He was 13 and he's 40 now, so it's it's been quite a while. Um, Go back to that day, Dale, if you can remember. Can you remember the day when you marked, this is when I became a believer? He can. Well, if you go all the way back there to that day, God was pursuing Dale. Dale responded to God pursuing him, but he didn't just find God. God was pursuing him. In my life, every time I thought I found God, in reflection, I didn't find God. He found me. I, I, I'm like the lost coin and the woman searching for it. The, the coin didn't do anything to be found. God was pursuing me in 1975 at the First Baptist Church in Middlesbrough, Kentucky. I didn't go there looking for God. God chose me now I preached a sermon from this at my, I'm interim at Quail Springs right now and uh, immediately after going out uh, after the sermon a second service I think this guy comes up to me and he says I knew you were one of us and, and I, I'm sure I looked at him like uh, what, what, what do you mean us he said a Calvinist I knew you were one of us and I said, I'm sorry to tell you, I don't, I don't think of myself as a Calvinist. And he looked so disappointed. And then he said, no, it's all right. I, it's okay. He wasn't mad at me. But what I'm expressing is, I don't, I don't think you have to be a Calvinist to believe that God pursued us and we responded to his pursuing us. Here's where, the, where the, sort of the crux of it for me. God is pursuing. God pursued me. I had these choice to reject that pursuit, but I didn't just choose God. He had to do a work in my heart or I could not and would not have chosen God. That's what election means for me. God chose you. God pursued you. You didn't pursue God. He pursued you. Now. That's who we are. We are God's elect, God's chosen. This is intended, I think, to give us some comfort, to help us understand who we are in the world. We are God's chosen people. And we didn't become chosen in some sort of a beauty pageant. Whereby we could lose that beauty and God would say, no, I don't love you anymore. We, We did not deserve it. We should not expect it. We were not lovable. I don't care what your mother told you. And yet, God pursued us. It's according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. The second phrase is, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, or through the sanctifying work of the Spirit. This electing foreknowledge goes into effect Through the work of the Holy Spirit. That's what I was just talking about. That pursuing of you, that God pursuing you is the work of the Spirit in your heart, in your life. That's the pursuit. The Spirit does that work. What do we call that? We used to use this phrase all the time. We'd say like, I think they're under conviction. That's the work of the Spirit. But the the work of the Spirit... An election is not limited to that moment when you say yes to God's pursuit of you. It continues on every day of your life as a believer. The work of the Spirit is a work of transformation, of character transformation. On the day that you or I or Dale said yes to Jesus, beginning at that moment, yes, the Spirit had done a work in convicting Dale, or me, or you. But on that, at that moment, the Spirit begins a work that will go on for a lifetime. And that's the character transformation that should take place in our lives. Look at chapter 1, verse 14. Here's a good description of the kind of character transformation that the, that the sanctifying work of the Spirit would do. He says in verse 14, "...as obedient children." Do not be conformed to your former lusts in your ignorance. Do not be conformed to your former manner of life in your ignorance. Look down there at verse 17. He says, if you call father, the one who judges impartially according to the work of each one, then live out the time of your immigration in reverence or in fear. This is that we're not supposed to be the people we were. We're supposed to be becoming something. He's now called us His people. He's called us saints, holy ones. Now we're supposed to live up to that. And you can't do it by your own moral effort. You will never live up to it. It is the work of the Spirit in our lives. He has called us to be holy people. This is the sanctifying work of the Spirit, and it involves character transformation. And then the third modifier, so here it is. You are chosen, according to the foreknowledge of God, um, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit. And then the last phrase, for the purpose of obedience and the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Somehow, here's the purpose in election. Our obedience and the the sprinkling of the blood of Christ, of Jesus Christ. Now, i got to tell you, I'm working through 1 Peter. There's a lot of 1 Peter that very easily, I thought, the meaning is right there on the surface. It's easy to grasp. Some lines are a little more obscure, a little bit more difficult to understand. This is one of them. That somehow our election was for our obedience and the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus. What's that mean? I think we're helped by looking at the Old Testament. The language of obedience and the sprinkling of the blood is the language of uh, being God's covenant people. It's the language of being God's chosen people. Listen to Exodus 24, 3-8. When Moses went and told the people all the Lord's words and laws, they responded with one voice, everything the Lord has said we will do. Moses then wrote down everything the Lord had said. He got up early the next morning, built an altar at the foot of the mountain, and set up 12 stone pillars representing the 12 tribes. Then he sent young Israelite men, and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as fellowship offerings to the Lord. Moses took half of the blood and put it in bowls, and the other half he splashed against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it to the people, and they responded, we will do everything the Lord has said we will obey. Now you notice here, there's blood. There's the blood of the sacrifice. It's been splashed onto the altar, and now half of it is still in these bowls. And and he reads the the, the law to them. And they say, we will do everything the Lord has said we will obey. There's obedience. Verse 8, Moses then took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. So here they are. God's making them his covenant people. And here is their we will obey and the blood is sprinkled on them. It's exactly the language that Peter uses here. That our election, according to God's foreknowledge, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, was for obedience and the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus. The purpose in an election was that we might be His holy people in the world. That we would be transformed spiritually, morally. That we would leave behind our former lusts That we would be transformed into his holy people. Character transformation. That we we would be obedient people. Now here's the, the strength of this statement. The blood of Jesus was not only sprinkled on you on that day, Dale, when you were 13. Or on me when I was 10. We we think about the blood of Jesus cleansing us. He uses that language later in chapter 1. We're going to get to it. That's true. That happened on that day. But the blood of Christ has been sprinkled on us every day since that day. And the purpose of it is that we will be his obedient people. So what happens when we fall back into the former patterns of life? What happens when we fall back into life as we knew it before we were his people? It's as if we are thumbing our nose at the blood of Jesus. It's as if we're taking it for granted. This is why he chose us to be his obedient people, sprinkling of the blood on us every day. And as we ignore the precious blood of Jesus and fall back into those old patterns, we're treating the blood of Jesus as if it is trash. And every moment of every day that we consider going back into the old ways of living, we consider going back into those former patterns, those former lusts, We should run from that with every ounce and fiber of our being. Because as we refuse to be obedient, we are treating the blood of Jesus as if it is trash. This is why we are his people, for obedience and the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus. Let's have a prayer. Father, I pray that we would be your obedient people. You have chosen us. I pray we would live up to that calling. And I pray we would do it out of honor to the precious blood of Christ. May we never take it for granted. May we not treat it like trash. In the name of the one who shed that blood, I pray. Amen.